Because man must not live on bread alone, but, but, but on every word that comes from God's mouth, let us turn to John 17 and live on these words, feast on these words tonight. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Let me read it for you, and then we will jump in. If you want to follow along or take notes, if you have a handout from this morning, there are a few more in the back, but there is a, an outline there you can follow along to get the, the main points, the two main points, and the main idea. If you are in a pew Bible, the page number is? 766. 766. 766. It is good to memorize the books of the Bible. But if you don't know, for this week, page 766, John 17. Remember, Jesus is praying this prayer on a Thursday night. He's about to get arrested in the next chapter, and he's going to be on trial through the middle of the night all the way until the next morning. By 9 a.m., he will be hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem for the next six hours until his side is pierced, and he screams, it is finished, and says, into your hands I commit my spirit to the Father. So here's the prayer, the Thursday night before he's crucified that Friday morning in daytime. Hear then the word of the Lord from John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, I pray not only for these 11 disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us, so the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will make it known. So the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Father, we are praying now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. And we are praying the prayer of Jesus. That you would make us one. That we would be one. And we would practically and functionally grow in maintaining and keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray that we would be where Jesus is. That we would endure to the end. And that our faith would be found true and real. And we pray that we would dwell with you, Father, forever and ever in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we can see His glory. And where the love, Father, that you have for the Son would be in us, and that the Son Himself would indeed be in us forever and ever. So, Father, as we meditate on this text, we pray that we would taste of its goodness and see that You are good. Feed our souls tonight, Lord Jesus, as our chief pastor, as our chief shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the main idea here, it's uh, Jesus is praying for us, Christians, and he prays two prayer requests primarily. He prays for our unity, and he prays for our destiny. So we will just look at those prayer requests, and then we will be done meditating on this passage. So if you look at verse 20, we have the people he's praying for. He says in verse 20, I pray not only for these, and it's these 11 that he prayed for in verses 6 through 19, 
excluding Judas, the other 11 disciples. I I pray not only for these 11 that he just prayed for, but also for those who what? Believe in me through their message. Who's that? Us, right? Everyone who will believe in Jesus through the apostolic message. So he prayed for the 11 apostles. He goes up to heaven. Remember, he told us earlier in John 14, 15, and 16, he's going to give his Holy Spirit to the apostles, and they will remember what Jesus taught them, and they will, they will have a Spirit-empowered memory to remember the teachings of Jesus, and they will explain it and teach it to the church. And so the New Testament was written, and their teachings are what the early church devoted themselves to in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or doctrine. Okay, And so all of those who will believe in Jesus through the ministry of the apostles are those that Jesus is praying for now. So it's all of us here and every believer ever since the 11 disciples all the way until Christ comes again. Okay? That's who he's praying for in this prayer. Isn't it amazing that we have a prayer here where Jesus has us specifically in mind? This is great. Okay, so he's praying for us in verse 20. And so he prays two things for us. In verses 21 through 23, he prays for our unity. And in verses 24 through 26, he prays for our destiny. So he prays for our unity, and then he prays for our destiny. Let's think about his prayer for our unity first. What does he pray for? Look at verse 21. Here's what he prays. He prays that may they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So there's a prayer request, that they may be one. You get that again in verse 22. At the end of verse 22, it says, May they be one, as we are one. And then 23, I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one. So you have it over and over here. May they be made one. The prayer is for unity. The prayer is for oneness amidst the diversity among the many, many Christians throughout the ages and languages and even denominations and different disagreements. They have all true believers who believe in the gospel. May they be one. Like what? What does it mean to be one? Verse 21 gives us an example of what it means to be one, to fill out this prayer request. May they all be one as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us. Okay, so verse 21 says, may they all be one how? As who? As the Father is in who? The Son, and as the Son is in the Father. So, the Father and the Son, in John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Okay? I and the Father are one. In other words, the Father and the Son are always on the same page. In their love, in their mission, in their plan. Even when Jesus is at great anguish and he says, let this cup be passed from me, he's still on the same page as the Father because he says, let this cup be passed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so even in his most anguishing moment of prayer where he desires to avoid the cup, he still even more so desires his oneness with the Father. And so you have here a unity where the Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father. And so Jesus is saying, the same way that Father, me and you are one, and we dwell within each other, may they be one. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God wants Steve Step to dwell in PJ and PJ to dwell in Steve Step, and in all of us together that we're dwelling in each other? That might be one way of taking it. I don't think that's what it means. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. How will we be one? Who's in us? Christ Christ is in us, right? In verse 26, 
He's in all of us, right? Is it the same Jesus in all of us? Yes, it's not a different Jesus. So if the same Jesus in all, is in all of us, then we are all what? In him, and we're all one, right? But not only is the Son in us, who else is in us? God the Father, right? The Father is in us. And so if the Father is in us, just like the Father is in Jesus, then that makes us all one, united. So here, Jesus is not praying, first of all, for a practical unity. That's the application. The practical application of this is that we all would actually functionally be united. But he's not praying for a functional unity. He's praying for an actual unity, an ontological unity, a real unity where we're actually one. Whether we actually are keeping up our unity or not, I could be fighting with one of you, but that wouldn't necessarily break the unity that is real. I might be bucking against that reality, but Jesus is praying for the reality, reality to be made. That as Jesus lives in us, and as the Father lives in us, just as the Father and Son live in each other, that would unite us as one people, one body, because we have one Messiah living in us. We have one Father living in us, not two. And therefore, we should be one. Okay? So that's the prayer request. is for unity with the Father and Son dwelling in us the way they dwell in one another. Now, why is this the prayer request? You can pray a lot of things for the future disciples, Jesus. Why are you praying for this thing? Why pray for their oneness in reality? One church, one people. Why? Verses 21 and 23. Verse 21 says, May they be one in us, so what? At the end of verse 21, why? So the world may believe that you sent me. And then you look at verse 23 as well. May they be made completely one, so the world may know what? That you send me. So here's reason number one why this is an important prayer request. If all true Christians actually, genuinely become one with the Father and Son dwelling in them, what is that going to show to the world? That Jesus was sent by the Father. And does Jesus want the gospel to spread? Yes. Why? Because when they believe in Jesus, they glorify Jesus. And when you honor Jesus, you honor who? God the Father. And Jesus is all about the glory of God, right? And so he wants the unity of the church for the glory of God as the world believes in the gospel. And so we need to show, and we, well, first of all, we need to realize that if we are in Christ, God already answered this prayer. Actually, he did. We are one in Christ. We are one with all other true Christians. That's just, that's what he prayed for. And that's what, when Jesus, remember this Thursday night, what is he going to do the next day? He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise from the dead on Sunday. He's going to ascend 40 days later. He's going to descend, he's going to send the spirit down 50 days after the resurrection. And the church will be one body in Christ. This prayer is going to be answered. God will actually dwell in his people and does dwell in his people. So this oneness is real and it's now. Okay. And, and when we, when, as we are one, the world believes that Jesus was sent by the Father. It doesn't mean everyone's going to get saved, but it is an apologetic for evangelism. Very strange, you know, with all these evangelism books out there and all these evangelism strategies, how can the world know that we are the people of God and that the Father actually sent the Son? You know the best way the world will know? By our love for one another. That just blows away the world. They walk into a room like this or to a group like ours. You see people from different generations right? Three, four generations. You'd span four or five generations here within our people from the, the baby that was just born yesterday, right? All the way to our oldest member. How old is Doris now? 97, I think. 98. 
right? So you got you got one day old to 98 years old in one church family, perhaps, you know, I mean, I know babies are not in our church family, but in the same church community. You have that, you have different generations, you have different ethnicities, you have different religious backgrounds from which we've been saved, you have different cultural preferences, you have different second languages spoken, and you have a group of people acting like a family and loving each other like a family, even more or at least as much as they love their own biological family. This is crazy to the world. But this is real. That's what the church is. That's what local churches are to be. And when the world sees that, there's only one explanation of it. You can't say, oh, the pastor is very, um, he's very savvy with his, his um, community building strategy. And he's got a good way of, of linking together different generations. No, no, we don't. We don't have a good community building strategy. We have the gospel. We preach Jesus. We preach his death and resurrection. We, pre- we preach repentance from sin and forgiveness. We preach faith in Jesus Christ. And God saves people and then he unites us together. And so other people walk in and they say, what is going on here? God is going on here, is the answer. And he's made us one. And the world believes in Jesus when they see the unity of the church. Okay, so that's the first thing. And then secondly, or um, not only that, there's a second reason. Not only so that the world would believe, but there's a second reason at the end of verse 23. So the world may know that you sent me, and what else would the world know? That you, Father, have loved the disciples as you have loved me. When we are united as one body, you know what that shows the world? God the Father loves these people. Whether it's a small church of 15 people or a large church of 15,000 people, when they see the unity of the body in Christ, non-Christians have to stand back and say, I don't know what's going on with these people, but they got the favor of God on them. Someone really loves them. Because look at their life. Not that their life is perfect. Their life is actually broken. They're suffering just the way we're suffering in the world. But they have each other in a way that we don't. And when the world sees that, they know that the Father loves the Son. What does unity look like, practically? Unity looks like there's a good example and a bad example. So, I don't know if you remember. You don't have to turn there. You can keep your finger here, though. Third John, chapter 9, or verse 9, talks about diatrophies. Here's what Diotrephes said. This guy is disunity. Third John 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive us. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not as satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome the brothers himself, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Wow. This is disunity. Diotrephes was a leader in the church, and whenever anyone else wanted to come in, you know what he would do? He'd kick them out. Why? Because he wanted to be, it says here, Diotrephes who loves to have first place among them. He wouldn't support other workers. He wouldn't support other people who believed in the gospel. It didn't matter whether you believed in Jesus or not. You're not coming in and displacing me from first place amongst my local church. And John says that that is not to be commended. Imitate, he says, imitate, don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Diotrephes was, was disruptive. He was divisive. He was self-exalting. Now, if you just read a few verses before that, there's another example of Gaius who lived for church unity. Listen to what, what, how he describes, describes Gaius. He says, Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers. He wrote to Gaius, and he's saying to, to Gaius, You're showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. 
They, they have testified to your, to your love, Gaius, in front of the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we can, do, so that we can be co-workers of the truth. What did Gaius do? He supported them. They were strangers, but they had the same gospel. And so when they came to visit Gaius, he supported them, he encouraged them, he strengthened them, and he led his church to support them on their way. That's unity among the body of Christ, which means we need to know who Jesus is, we need to know the gospel, so we're not just uniting with anyone who says, I'm a Christian, right? We need to have our doctrinal um, convictions in place and clarity on the gospel, but once we have that and we see that, we need to promote unity amongst not just our own local church, but even among churches. And that's why we pray for other churches, even if we don't know many of them personally. Okay, so so there's Jesus' prayer, is for the unity of the church. If, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, let me, let me bring this out practically. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. So if you look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1. We're going to look at 1 through 6. And I'm thinking, because for the sake of time, I want to take the next 15 minutes to think about unity together. And I think we're going to pick up the prayer request on destiny next Sunday. We'll see. I don't want to rush it. So we might, we'll see, we'll see how, how this goes. I'm just planning my time here. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Listen to this command. Therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoner for the Lord, and he is writing from prison, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love. Diligently doing what? In verse 3. Keeping what? Keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us in the bond of peace. Does he say create the unity? Does he say make the unity? Keep it. In other words, it's already it's already there. It exists. When and if you go to Ephesians 2, the spirit lives in the people, right? They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're already one body. You don't make yourself one body. You don't have the power to do that. I don't have the power to make us one body. God does, and God did. And so the command to us is not to make unity. The command is to diligently maintain unity. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace or the peace that binds us. And then he talks about the reality. Now, look at 4 through 6. You don't make 4 through 6. 4 through 6 is not a command. It's an indicative. It's just telling you what is. There is how many bodies? There's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. See why we're united? We didn't make it one faith. That's just, there is only one faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. We didn't make one hope. God made one hope. There's one spirit, one body, one Lord. There's only one Jesus, right? One faith. There's only one baptism, immersion into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one God and Father of all. So unity is already there. I mean, God made it in the church. That's what the church is. If there is no unity in the church in actuality, it's not a church. Okay, because if the Spirit's not living in them, and they're not holding to the one faith, and they don't have the one Father and the one Lord, they're not a church. 
But if they are a true church, then there already is true unity. So the command is not make unity or create unity. The command is maintain unity. Keep unity. Fight against disunity with love and out-loving disunity. Okay, I'm going to ask John to come up here for a second um, and pass this out, if you could. Here are... Now, um, here's an article that Tom Rayner wrote. Tom Rayner is the president of Lifeway Christian Resources, which used to be the Sunday school board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So um, Tom is the president and CEO of this. It's a Southern Baptist um, entity, Lifeway Christian Resources. And he wrote this article on May 13, 2015 on his website, TomRayner.com. It's um, 14 key reasons for the breakdown of church unity. Now, I give this to you just for your, for your consideration, and I also give this to you to think about how we can obey Ephesians 4.4, 4, okay? Or Ephesians 4.3. Ephesians 4.4-6 4 through 6 is real. We are one church with one body, one faith. So here's the question. How can we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? 14 key reasons for the breakdown of church unity. You could read the whole article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to kind of go over these 14 key points. I just want to read them to you. And then depending on the time, um, we, can, we can think about it. And then we'll bring this, this time to a close and, and pray for, for us to obey Ephesians 4.3 in light of John 17, verses 20 through 23. Okay? So, uh, here I'll just read the last paragraph before he gets into his list. What are some of the key reasons we see for the breakdown of unity in our churches? Though this list, my list is not exhaustive, allow me to share 14 of those reasons. And, you know, this could happen. We have... 200 churches in our association, our Southern Baptist Association here locally. And, you know, different churches that have different degrees of disunity. It could be some, some of these. And the reason I'm giving you these is not to point the finger at other people. The reason I'm giving you these is to, is to think about your own heart and then to think about how we as a church can work towards this in, um, in light of Jesus' prayer for his people. Okay, so this is just something to think about and pray about. And, um, and then to work for in our own lives, in terms of our own growth. Okay, so number one. Here, number one reason for a breakdown of church unity. Gossip. Church members talk about one another instead of talking to one another. Paul calls church members who gossip people filled with all unrighteousness in Romans 1, 29. I don't think Paul's referring to, to church members there. That's what Tom Rayner says. In Romans 1, he's referring to... Um, well, actually, he's referring to all people, all sinners, who all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the point is, gossip is talking about one another behind their back, right? And not saying it to them. And so, um, what we want to build in our church is a community of what I would call gossip stoppers. Do you know what a gossip stopper is? A gossip stopper is someone who hears gossip, and then they, they take it immediately, and they, they find a way to... To, to nip it in the bud by solving the issue right away instead of perpetuating it. So a gossip stopper would be someone like, let's say I'm gossiping and I say to Steve, hey Steve, you know Jim really um, irked me the other day and Jim sinned against me in this way. And I start listing it. Steve should say, PJ, hold it right there. Um, don't speak anymore because you're going to gossip about Jim. Did you talk to Jim first? Well, no, I haven't talked to Jim yet. Okay, you need to talk to Jim first and then... And then if you need help because you're not getting through to Jim, then maybe you can call me and I'll, I'll be happy to join that conversation. What is that going to do for me? It's going gonna, it's gonna to do one of two things. One, it's, well, it's going to stop that conversation, right? Because now I can't gossip to Steve. But there's a second thing that's going to go on there. What's going to happen is 
Steve is going to be marked in my mind as someone I'm not going to go to with gossip because he won't, he won't perpetuate it. Steve has become, at least in that moment, a gossip stopper. And so I need to go find someone else that will receive it and, 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 and listen to it and, and let it sort of live. So what we want to be in the church is, is a church family where we're going to sin against each other, right? Do you guys understand that? We're going to sin against each other as, as, as church family. It's just going to happen. I don't, want, I don't like that, but that's real reality. And so when we sin against each other, we need to be a, a, a family that instead of perpetuating the problem, we need to actually talk to each other and say, I, I'm sorry I stepped on your toes and I sinned against you. Can you please forgive me? And we need to have that kind of communication to do um, gossip stopping. And that's in Ephesians 4. If we read on Ephesians 4, verses 29, where it says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Okay, Um, another key reason to break down in church unity is actions cloaked in darkness. This is, again, Tom Rainer's words. I recently heard of of a church personnel committee and a few church staff members who worked in darkness to fire a pastor without ever meeting with him first or giving him reasons for his dismissal. Then they refused to respond to church members who were asking questions. So just making sure everything's out in the open. That's why I love Baptist polity. Congregationalism is awesome. I love church business meetings because it's good to put things out in the open. That's good for our church. It's good to keep it there where, where we can work through things together as a church family. A third one is a failure to confront church bullies. Um, what he means here is just like if there's certain members that seek power, in church because they can't get it elsewhere. Um, so just be aware of that. Number four is self-serving church members. Some members insist on getting their own way um, from everything from worship style to order of worship, blah, blah, blah. Biblical church membership, however, is selfless and more concerned about others. This is our church covenant that we talked about, loving one another. And so we want to, um, we want to, we want to keep the unity in terms of, of, of reminding each other that we all have spiritual gifts. Number five, lack of prayer. So um, we need to, and I, I know that, you know, one of, the, one of my favorite things about this church is praying with other church members because um, I love hearing the prayers of the saints and you have encouraged me so much with, with our prayer time together. And so, so that, that's another thing that we could do is, is pray together. Number six here is fear of confrontation. We need to be able to confront each other when there's wrong. Um, number seven, um, hypercriticism. That doesn't mean we can't have criticism. This is talking about people who criticize on Facebook and Twitter. Um, that doesn't happen here. That I don't know if you are on social media, but you could still see that in some other churches where there's just sadly some people talking about their, their other fellow church members in a public online arena, which is just sad. It's very, it's very sad. Um, a low expectations church, that's number eight. That's just basically saying, if you're a member of this church, what are the expectations? Actually, let's answer that question here as a group, maybe. What are some expectations for our church members? What do you expect of our new church members coming in, or even of our, our fellow church members now? What are some expectations you have? Anyone? Take an active role. Take an active role. What else? Come, to Come regularly. That's a good expectation. What else? Grow spiritually. Grow spiritually. Yeah. Biblical. What else? Love God. Love God. What else? Be part of a prayer group. Yeah, if you get an email or if you hear a prayer request, pray for it even privately. Sure, pray for one another. And and so here's the thing is, to to keep a church united, you have to have clear expectations and high expectations. Now, to be fair, I talked about this morning in Deuteronomy 4, we're not adding to the Bible, right? We don't want more expectations than the Bible has. That would be a legalistic church. 
where I say something like, you have to come to Sunday school, Sunday service, Sunday night, and Wednesday. If I said that as a pastor, you should say, PJ, that's not in the Bible that you have to. And if I said you're sinning, if you miss one of those, that would be wrong, right? Yeah, so you don't want to have higher expectations than the Bible has. But all the ones you brothers and sisters mentioned, that's just, you know, that's typical biblical um, expectations. And I want to um, commend you, brothers and sisters. I was talking to a regular attender this, this morning, and this regular attender said, um, I want to join this, I want to, I want to consider membership in this church. And part of the reason is they can see that there's a sense of family here and a sense of expectation to grow as a Christian. And um, that's because of you, brothers and sisters, interacting with this person. I've rarely interacted with this person who talked to me about it. So I'm assuming it's coming from you guys in terms, of, in terms of your own interaction with them. So low expectations is the death of church unity. Biblical high expectations of each, each church member will help with the unity of the church. Uh, number nine here, no church discipline. And um, some churches don't practice that or, or even have a concept of that. Number 10, um, churches are known more for what they're against rather than what they are for. What are we for as a church, primarily? Furthering the word, furthering the gospel, right? We're for the love of God and the gospel of God going out to sinners so that they might be saved, right? That's what we're for. And that's what we want to be known for in this church. We are about Jesus, crucified and risen. He's everything to us, amen? He's everything to us, and that's what unites us. That's what unites us. And are we supposed to be against some things? Yes, right? We are. We need to speak with crystal clarity to our culture and to each other and to other churches, what we're against. Um, I was debating just the other day, one of a former pastor from our association um, who we just recently kicked out of our association because they were for gay marriage, uh, just recently asked to, to befriend me on one of the social media things and I was like oh I don't know what to do like do I I don't want to you know I was kind of I was kind of at loss for words because I want to communicate clearly that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin but the Bible also says very clearly that if you repent and believe in Christ the spirit of God will help us grow and fight and change and maybe maybe you'll never change in this life maybe you will but the point is the spirit will cause you to be born again and so even though we want to be clear on what we're against because the Bible says many things are sins, and we need to be clear on it. And I, I think one of the strengths of the Southern Baptist Convention and our denomination, and even our church, is the clarity of our convictions here. Uh, if you go to the ERLC website, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, you have all these articles by the Southern Baptist Convention on, on issues in our culture that are pressing so that we can be clear as Christians on how to think about things in our day. We need to be clear on what we're against, but even more, we need to be clear on what we are Four, because that's what unites us as a church, okay? Uh, number 11 here is fear of losing members. Now, um, we need to love everyone, every sheep. That was actually in our, right here in our program today. And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. We need to care for every single church member. I, especially as a pastor, need to do that, and I need to give an answer to Jesus on Judgment Day, Hebrews 13, 17 for how I care for members. So we need to love every single member of our church. All the active ones and all the inactive ones, which is a lot of inactive ones, but all of them. But even with that, we need to love them without fear of losing them. And what I mean by that is, uh, we don't ever want the church to get in a way where um, 
It says here, well, I'll read Tom Rainer's words here. I'm familiar with one church plagued by a spirit of divisiveness by one particular member. No members have confronted him because they don't want to lose one of the biggest givers of, in the church. Well, that could be the death of a church, right? If, if, you're just, if, if the money is driving your convictions and you can't say, you can't love the person and speak the truth in love because you're scared of losing money, that church is going to go downhill fast, right? And the unity of the church is going to be broken up. Well, you can't break the unity, but the, the, the maintaining of the unity will be. And so, um, yeah, you don't want, you want to love every single member the way Christ did. And yet at the same time, you don't want to be so fearful that you can't love them like Christ did. Okay, that's number 11. Number 12, failure to be evangelistic. I have never known a church member who is both evangelistic and divisive. That's just good for our souls to hear, right? Like, you know, you can't do both. If you're so passionate for evangelism and you're, you're evangelizing people, it's, you're, the main thing is going to be so clear to you that oh, you're not going to have too much time to be divisive. Uh, 13 would be power groups, and then that's just alliances and things like that. And then 14, that could be leaders. That could be pastors like myself and the deacons being a power group to bully the church or something like that. Um, you want to be aware of those things in the church. Make sure the word is ruling. That's, again, why we have congregationalism. Because the deacons, or me as the pastor, we, we're not the Pope, and we can't just do whatever we want. We can actually be vetoed and, and even fired or you know, removed, and that's a good thing. That's a good accountability to have in the church. And then lastly, 14 is the silent, fearful majority. One church member said, it's not always good to know the truth. Such a statement is unbiblical and, uns- and symptomatic of members who let evil exist because they're afraid to confront it. So um, we want to be a church... That's aware of these things, but we don't want to be, you got to be careful here. A list like this, and he said like right here that the, this is negative. You don't want to use this as a headhunting list. That's not the point. The point of this is, we going back, let's look at Ephesians 4. as Before we close in prayer, just briefly, let's look again at the command. If Jesus prayed for our unity, and we have this unity in the Father and in the Son, who lives in all of us, what's the command in, in Ephesians 4, verse 3? Again, what is God telling us to do? diligently keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's close by praising God for verses 4, 5, and 6. Praise God that there is one body. Praise God that there is one Spirit. Praise God that we have one hope, that Christ is coming again. Praise God we have one calling, one Lord, Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And you know, if you go to Ephesians 4, verses 7 and following, if you go through those verses, we're not going to go through them here. But you know what Jesus says? I I talked about this a few weeks ago. In Ephesians 4, 7 and following, here's what Jesus says, and I love this. Every single member of the church is a gift from Jesus to the church. When he ascended on high, he purchased every single one of us, and he gives every single member as a gift to us. Therefore, we maintain the unity we outlove each other and we outdo each other in showing honor because every single one on our members list is a gift. And we need to be thankful for every member and, and, and just love the Lord Jesus who gave them to us and us to them that we might love each other and grow in Jesus Christ. For closing prayer, do we have two mics? Okay, can I get two or three brothers or sisters to just thank God for the unity we have in Christ already and then even pray that we would maintain the unity? Two or three volunteers? Anyone as we close in prayer? Tonight, Steve, Al, and one more to close our time in prayer. Steve, Al, and one more. One more volunteer. Jim. Okay. So Steve, Al, and Jim. Let's praise the Lord for our unity. So yeah, give it to Al and then John after that. Al, you could start and then John will run it to Jim. Okay. Let's praise the Lord together and pray to him.